Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're almost through with 1 Corinthians 15. In just a second or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 50 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 58. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 816, by the way, in the church Bibles. If that would be of some help to you, we're going to read God's word as we must, and we're going to pray to God as we should in light of our great need this morning. Amen. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in other words, in in light of all those 57 verses, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. This is the word of God. May God grant us understanding of it this morning. Let's pray together. Father, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And our desperate need is for the Holy Spirit to come and change us and to teach us as your word and only your word is proclaimed. May we be given this morning a fresh vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And may, as we move along in these things this morning, may a spirit of deep humility and thankfulness run through us as we discover what is waiting for us soon. And we pray this for the honor of Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Two weeks ago, this Tuesday, our congregation publicly mourned the death of a founding member of this church, actually our last living member, founding member, and and surely uh, an example to us all, because she for over seven decades, by the grace of God, by all accounts, if your Bible's still open, verse 58, she lived that in mind. And so with that in mind, having been dealing with the subject of the resurrection for quite a few weeks, and now near the end of chapter 15, it occurred to me that it would serve every one of us well if I began this talk the way I began her funeral talk because many of you weren't there. This is what I said. It's actually a quote. There is a preacher of the old school who speaks today as boldly as ever. He's not popular, although the world is his parish. He travels over every part of the globe and speaks in every language under the sun. He visits the poor. He calls upon the rich. You meet him in the inner cities. You find him moving into the highest of societies. He preaches to people of every religion and of no religion. And the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher. 
He often stirs feelings which no other preacher could and brings tears into eyes which never ever weep. His arguments none have been able to refute, nor is there any heart unmoved by the force of his appeals. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him and fear him, but in one way or another, everybody will hear him. He's neither refined nor polite. Indeed, he often interrupts public arrangements and breaks in rudely upon the private enjoyments of life. He has a master key that gives him access to the most secluded chamber. Neither the villa, the mansion, nor the palace daunt him by their greatness, and no court or street is mean enough to escape his notice. The name of this preacher is death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. Loved ones, someday, someday, every one of us here this morning will be a sermon. Now, we have said on a few occasions that death and what comes after has, has become, if we could, the taboo subject of the early part of the 21st century. One can curse, one can talk about pornography more easily than they can talk about death in polite conversation. Indeed, if you really think about it, you can talk about just about anything you choose, provided that you do not raise uh, the issue of death and what comes after with any degree of certainty. Death has become the subject of embarrassment. It has become the, the subject of that kind of muddle-headed, you know, puffy clouds and angels' wings, and, and the boys will all be back at the cabin, guaranteed up there in the sky. People are confused by death. They are fearful of it. And if it was all possible, they would just as well have nothing to do with it all. It was Woody Allen, who I pray for regularly, who said, I don't fear death. I just don't want to be around when it comes for me. And so the act and the process of dying consequently has been removed further and further from life. Let me just give you one illustration. In earlier generations, death was just an acceptable part of life. Uh, more people died at home than hospital. And certainly there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a fact of our contemporary culture that has unintended consequences. While I was on vacation, I read uh, the online edition of The Guardian and had the subtitle of this article, Are We Ready to Face Death Without Religion? Right? Uh, And it speaks of the rise of atheist funerals. So I was talking to a local uh, mortician, and he told me that less and less people want any kind of public funerals at all. That you just want to be cremated or done away with nothing to say. And he, he's surprised and shocked, and he's a young man. So we have, in light of this reality, sought to medicate ourselves from death's reality, and we use pills and potions and lotions, and we, the disguises and mixed drinks and trips and activities, which we think will help us cover up the pain and the ugliness of our decay and the certainty of death. And then we begin to say silly things like, well, we only live once. And then after we say those silly things, we may go do silly things, or we might even go do sinful things, especially in light of God's instruction for his beloved people in verse 58. Therefore, since it's not good for the Christian to place their trust in things which can be shaken... Since there's nothing stable for us underneath the sky, since change is written into everything we do, since death is written into everything on this earth, since it's terribly, terribly unhealthy spiritually to live a life that is afraid of death, and since we need an answer to the question, why do I feel the dust of death settle even on my brightest and happiest moments? 
Why is it that I feel sometimes that I have to do X right now? Because if I don't do X right now, I may never have a chance to do it again. Why is that? Well, since all that is true, and we know it is, we need a word from God. We need a word from God to set our minds right, set the pace and the bent of our life in a direction that is not only correct, but makes absolutely unbelievable sense in light of a bodily resurrection and entry into the kingdom of God, which is coming. It's coming only because of what Christ has accomplished in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And this is only for people who place their hand in the man who not only stills the water, but the hand of the man who has scars on his hands because he suffered on the cross for our sins, our sins which block the way to heaven which he, if you would, kicked down for us in his grace. So this morning, if you have a worship folder, you'll see it on the back. We're going to work under four headings. They're pretty simple. Declaration, revelation, celebration, with a bit of uh, exhortation, if you would, at the end. And through all this, what you need to see, what, what I need to see, is there is a logical progression of thought used by the apostle here. This is not an emotional appeal. It may make us emotional. It made me emotional all week when I was in the text. But this is Paul saying once again, and and we are in such desperate need as a people to do this. Think this through. Think past the implications of what he's saying. Think how this glorious truth should mark our lives until the very end. Not just for moments when, you know, we get near death and we get kind of afraid and we make empty promises to God and then, and then life goes on and we trash the promises. None of that stuff. The right bent, the right pace until the end. Verse 58, unmoved. Okay, first of all, then declaration. Verse 50, the Bible's open. You'll see this. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And in this, Paul gives his readers two true declarations. Number one, pretty simple, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We spoke to this last week. We'll touch on it briefly now. The principle, very straightforward. We can't go into heaven as we are. We cannot go into heaven as we are. Flesh and blood is fallen, it is fleeting, and it will fail us again and again. Flesh and blood speaks to our humanness, and no mere human can survive in heaven. Flesh and blood speaks to our sinfulness. And there can't be a speck of sin in God's kingdom. Heaven is perfect and forever. Flesh and blood, because of sin and its penalty, death, it's not. Therefore, simple, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor can, verse 50b, perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, if you would... We're like potatoes now, right? Potatoes are pretty easy to grow. And in the right condition, they'll last a pretty long time. But they don't last forever, do they? When they have those things growing out of them and they start to get soft, what happens? We know they're no good, right? Subsequently, since our bodies are only built for now, and they're not built now forever, we can't go into heaven as we are. We can't, verse 50, inherit the kingdom of God as we are. Now, for those of you that are thinking... In one sense, the Christian has already entered into the kingdom of God, right? Because the kingdom of God broke in when Jesus broke into this world. And when his gospel's preached and people say yes by grace, more and more people enter into the kingdom. However, the kingdom of God's final consummation, 
when it comes in its fullness, when it comes in its full glory, in its full power, we have not yet entered into it. In other, in other words, if you would, we ain't seen nothing yet. Right? This is just like a speck. Whatever glory we feel now and the good that we feel now and, and being part of the kingdom, it's just a speck of what's coming in our bodily resurrection. So now, right now, we live between the times, between the kingdom coming and its consummation, right? Between its coming and complete, between inauguration and consummation. Now we fall, now we fail, now we know losses and we carry crosses which burden us in our decline. However, then we will know none of those things, none of those things ever. And so if our bodies... If our bodies are going to inherit the kingdom, something radically profound must happen to us. We need to be transformed. We need to be changed. We need to be fitted for our future inheritance. And that takes us right to our second point. Revelation, verses 51 and 52. Listen. See that word listen? It's the Greek word edu. It's an intense Greek word. It's actually translated see. King James Version. Behold. Right? Behold of this mystery. Listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not going to all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So what's happening here then is when Paul tells us that he's going to give us this mystery, the word mystery that Paul uses is not speaking of something which we could never, ever know, right? We'll probably never, ever know who killed JFK, right? We'll never know where, uh, what's his name, Jimmy Hoffa's buried. We'll never know how Tom Cruise keeps looking so good year after year after year, right? We'll never know those things. But here, we'll know. And so what Paul is saying is simply this. What was previously concealed is now being revealed. What was veiled is being unveiled. What was covered up is now being uncovered. Now you understand this. This is a very, very important biblical principle. This is an unchanging truth about God's will for his people, which we would never, ever know unless God, through his servants, in his word, told us. Very important we understand this. This is revealed truth for all from the scripture. This is not secret truth for some in whispers. I'll say it again. This is revealed truth for all, everybody, from the scripture, not secret truth for some in whispers. In other words, we can't think of this on our own. These truths Paul is giving us is true. We can't think of something about God and know it guaranteed to be true unless it's aligned with the mind of God from his word. That's so important. Many people don't live under that umbrella. They just assume that it feels like it's God, then it must be God. They never open their Bible and check to see if it's true. We should not do that. Here, verses 51 and 52, is final. This is full revelation of what happens post-death and the transformation which takes place to our bodies when the final trumpet blows. Guaranteed. And so Paul gives an answer in verses 51 and 2 to the various obvious questions. This is it. This is the question he's answering. If we can't go into heaven as we are in flesh and blood, and I'm still alive when the last trumpet sounds and Christ calls, then how in the world am I going to get into heaven? It's a good question, right? Now, there's a parallel passage to this. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, begins around verse 13. And that 
passage answers the question, what happens to people who are already dead in Christ? Okay, you can read that for your homework. Don't panic. God's taking care of them greatly too. Here the question is, what if I'm alive when Jesus Christ returns? And so apparently when the last trumpet sounds, there's going to be believers alive on earth at the coming of Christ. Well, Paul says God's taking care of this. Number one, we're not going to all sleep, right? Sleeping is a metaphor for death in the New Testament. Most of you know that. But we're all going to be changed in a, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. Okay, so what's going to happen to our bodies if we're alive when Jesus Christ returns? Well, they're going to be changed. They're going to be changed not with present particles, okay? So this is not a reconstruction. This is not a makeover. This is not a, a resuscitation. This is a resurrection, I was thinking about this. It's kind of corny, but you ever watch the makeover shows where they put a guy and a girl and how they used to look and then they kind of doll them up and put some stuff and then they show them how they look and it's supposed to be better, right? And usually when people see how they look after they've been rearranged, they start to cry, right? They're like so happy the way they look before. Apparently they were dissatisfied with what was happening before. They're like, this is great. And they start to cry. There's no tears in heaven. There's no tears in heaven. So when we get to see what we are, whatever that great mystery is, we're not going to cry, We're going to be happy. We're going to be joy-filled. I mean, that's good news to me. Our bodies are going to be like Jesus. Okay, then how long will that change take place? Okay, well, will my transformation be like my birth into the world? Is is there some kind of a gestation period? Nine nine months, we'll say. Or is it going to be a process? So for, for those of you who like Marvel movies, they're the Incredible Hulk, right? So he gets mad. And he gets greener and greener and he gets bigger and bigger and it's a transformation until he gets baked and it takes just about a minute, right? So he goes from a normal guy to a big green monster for those of you who don't know who the Incredible Hulk is. We'll pretend like you don't know right now who the Incredible Hulk is. Okay, so is it going to be like a pregnancy or is it going to be a process? Paul says neither. It's going to be in a flash. In a flash. The Greek word there is Adam. Where we get our word Adam. And what this word means is, now I want you to think with me. In the smallest conceivable amount of time, there can be on this earth, right now, a time which can't be cut or divided. That's how long it will take for our bodies to be changed. Okay, that's a twinkling of an eye, verse 52b. Get that? That's how long. Okay, so this week I had a few moments and I got my iPhone out, which actually is Jared's iPhone that he gave to me, but never mind. And there's an app, the stopwatch app. And so what I tried to do is I tried to hit the stop and start button as fast as I could to see how low I could get the number. You know, it's a pretty fun thing to do. I started out at 0.23 seconds. I was impressed with that. But then I got to 0.10 seconds. And I thought, okay, that might be it. But I finally got it down to, you ready? Now don't do this now, do this later. 0.05 seconds. And I was like, wow, that's pretty good. But the twinkling of an eye... It's faster than that. In fact, the twinkling of an eye is just under, you ready? A billion feet per second in speed. Okay? Translation, that would be equivalent to circumnavigating the equator seven and a half times in one second. Okay? That's what a twinkling of an eye is. And that's how long it will take for those alive at the return of Christ and for those whose bodies have been in the grave that are going to be caught up in the sky when the last trumpet sounds to receive their glorified body. 
Now, loved ones, you can't read that. At least I can't. I can't read that, and I want to think through that text a little more. Because there's something bigger happening here, and I want to know what it is. First thing, I ask myself the question, what's the deal with the trumpets? Right? Why are trumpets needed? So I searched this big, thick book and to help my wee little brain, and I found out that trumpets in the ancient world were used to assemble crowds, to, to get armies together. And so the idea of this last trumpet blowing is to get the world looking up. That's the first thing. So the trumpet blows, and Christians alive and dead will, will respond to it. Okay, that's amazing. Okay, and in that last trumpet moment, we are told in the Bible that death will finally be defeated. So, so death is never, ever going to happen again after that last trumpet blows. So having asked myself the question about the trumpets, I then said to myself this. How good is God? Okay, now think with me, because this is good. In the smallest amount of time which we can conceive, our sin-fallen earthly bodies will be made like his son's holy and heavenly body. And God wants it that way. He, he wills the speed of this. Now, don't think that God is just trying to impress us with how fast he can move. And don't think he's just trying to give sorry preachers like me some material to get you going. Oh, that's really impressive. Seven and a half times. Wow. That's not why it is. Now, this is conjecture. But I want you to think with me. It's almost like God is saying in this, I've been waiting for this long, this day long enough. I've held back my wrath when men have mocked me and mocked my son. I've been patient with men and women who live like they are God. And so live like there's no God before them. Never really concerned with the worship of me, with obedience to me, or the honor of my name on that earth. I have been patient when my own people, my adopted children, have suffered so much and have known incredible loss for the honor of my name. Death has ruled. Sin has ruled. But that was then. And this is now. And we will never have to go back to that day again. Because now, now I want death gone forever. Now I want my son's vicarious death and his mighty resurrection, which defeated death. I want it to be seen as the greatest moment in all of human history. I want all eyes on my son. I want everybody, Philippians 2, to bow down to my son. I want my people to be transformed. I want them to have that glorified body like his. And I want to be with them in a way they have never known or never felt on this earth. So God would say, the waiting is over. It is over. And, and if you would, please, he would say, let's get this party started. Amen. And this party never, ever ends. That's your God. God wills it in the smallest amount of time that can be conceived on this earth as the last trumpet blows. We're changed. And it's forever. And we'll never know sin and death again. And those of us in touch with our sin, that is a moment we, I am waiting for. I am, we'll get to this in a second, I am eagerly awaiting for that day. There's a hymn, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glory of my God and King, the triumph of His grace, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears. And then it says, and I'm going to add a word here, tis eternal life and eternal health and eternal peace. 
Eternal peace. You know, as you think about that, may God have mercy on us when we live on this earth as dissatisfied children with our Father in heaven. When we live in, in the kind of secret places of our mind thinking that God has it in for us. He doesn't have it in for us. He just has something far better planned. And that's why we're told in Philippians 3.20, we are to eagerly await this Jesus, eagerly await this transformation. We don't have to be frightened of it. We just need to eagerly await it. And as you think about this, one of the most recognizable features of the Christian life ought to be that we are anticipating this day. I mean, this marks us. This is fuel for the day. And if you struggle with this, pray. Ask others to pray for you. Cut ties to the patterns of this world. The other worldly element in our existence ought to be part and parcel of who we are as we live. So if friends come over, we may drive the same kind of car, we may live in the same kind of house, we may have the same kind of job. But as they listen to us, they ought to say, what in the world is going on in this home? At least I hope they will. Why is that the case? Well, because we have an eager expectation of our Savior's return. You see, the danger for us now, and we live in this beautiful land, which I thank God for, but the beautiful danger, if you would, or the horrible danger is that we always are trying to bring heaven down to earth now, right? And we have our little pretend heavens. And if our pretend heavens get messed up, then we think everything's horrible. So we go, I need the right president. I need the right Congress. I need the right job, the right mate, the right kids, and the right income, the right savings, the right kind of car, the right kind of house, the right kind of weather, the right kind of time off, the right kind of body, And then, you know that song by Fred Astaire, only a few, I'm in heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak, sorry, and I seem to find the happiness I seek when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek, and you got to dance with all that worldly stuff, and you think that's heaven. We think that's heaven. Listen to C.S. Lewis on this. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Loved ones, how can we replace the things of eternity with the things of time? We can't. We can't. Have you ever been separated for a long time from somebody that you love? Now, you know this. I just said goodbye to my son just a couple of weeks ago. The moment he's gone, right now, I haven't gone past this. You know, there are parts of me that crumble. I'm off balance. But when I know he's coming home soon, when I know he's coming home, I shake myself right. I get out all those tech magazines and start to read myself up so we can have long conversations. And what am I doing? I'm getting things ready for his arrival. I'm getting me ready for his arrival. I am eagerly awaiting his return. You want to transform your life? You want to transform your marriage? You want to transform your singleness? You want to transform your thinking? Start eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. That will change how you view everything. It'll change how you do life. I guarantee it. Number one, declaration, flesh and blood can't go to heaven. Number two, revelation, holy buckets, we are in for a change. Number three, celebration. What's the celebration? Well, you see it there, verses 53 and 54. This is the abolition of death. Death is eradicated. Paul quotes from two Old Testament passages, one in Isaiah, one in Hosea. And then he tells us, 
When the perishable, verse 53, and mortal is clothed in imperishable and immortality, then the saying which is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Verse 54 was a song of praise that would be sung in Jewish worship. This is God's victory over death. Verse 55, I love it, is a taunt. This is God taunting death. Where is your victory, death? You will never, ever hurt anyone again, death. For those of us low-brained people who saw Rocky III, there's that classic thing when Rocky's beating up on Mr. T, and Mr. T is getting you know, pounded, and Rocky says to Mr. T, you ain't so bad, you ain't so bad, you ain't so bad. That's God to death. That is God to death. Now think with me. How could anyone say that kind of thing to death? I mean, I don't think on my deathbed I'll be saying, oh, you're not so bad. I don't know what I'll be saying. I could just be in a puddle of goo. Who knows what I'll be doing? So who can say that? Well, look at your Bibles because Paul's going to tell us. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. In other words, what gives death its sting is sin because death is the penalty of sin. Death, therefore, is an evil which exists because of humanity's rebellion against God. And what gives sin its power is the law because the the law reveals our sin and condemns each of us in our sin. So look at the pickle that you're in. We all sin. Death, which is separation from God and his wrath poured over us. That's what the Bible says. That's sin's penalty. And and there's no, you know, how-to talk. There's no moralistic, you should do better, I can help you do better talk, which can make us sinless, not totally sinless. So what are we going to do? Death is going to win. Death's going to win. Verse 57. No, it's not. Paul says, thank God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in the death of Jesus Christ alone on the cross, he bore the sting of death. He bore the sting in his body on the cross so that men and women who trust in him will never face the sting of death ever. We may go through the valley of the shadow of death. We may not be alive when the trumpet blows, but no matter, we will be made new only because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished at the cross and at his resurrection. There's a classic book. It's a really old book by John Owen, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Right? That's like Romans 8. Remember Romans 8 towards the end? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? Can death? No, death can't. Why not? Because God justifies us in Christ. Who is the one who can condemn us? Can death do that? No one. Why not? And this is what Paul says. Christ died. Christ was raised to life. Christ is at the right hand of God. Christ is interceding for his beloved. Christ, 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 Christ. And we celebrate this victory only because of what Jesus Christ has done. You know what we should do when we go home? Seriously, we should go home and throw a little party. Just have a little celebrate, a little resurrection celebration. Get some good stuff out, the best stuff you got in your fridge, and have a little party. Because this day is coming. This day is coming because we're left with a choice. Either we embrace this victory, live out verse 58 unmoved, unafraid, or we don't. 
And we live in the sadness and sorrow of the decay and decline of our bodies, the decay and decline of our mind, and we never get to that place in time, and we can't go there, and we don't do this, and all that stuff that seems to be muddled in our mind these days. Listen to your Bible. Hebrews 2, 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too shared in the humanity. Okay, why? So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Can I ask you a question? Are you living in that kind of slavery this morning? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of this? Are you a slave to this? And would you not be liberated? Would you not be liberated and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who made this resurrection body stuff available through his death? through taking the sting of death for you. Declaration, revelation, celebration. We're almost through. Okay, again, I was on vacation. We went to the Wizard of Oz festival, right? And so on Saturday night, they had the outdoor viewing of the movie Wizard of Oz. It was great. We all went. My family went. It was fun. So my favorite part in the movie, the mayor. As, as mayor of the Munchkin City, right? In the county of the land of Oz, I welcome you most regally. And he's welcoming Dorothy, right? So the, one of the men, I guess probably like a, a steward, he comes in and he says, but we got to verify legally to see, and then the mayor says, to see, if she, and the mayor says, if she, and then he says, is morally, ethically, spiritually, physically, positively, absolutely, undeniably, and reliably dead. You know this, the coroner walks up and he says, As coroner, I must aver, I thoroughly examine her. And she's not only really dead, she's really most sincerely dead. Thank you. And then the mayor comes, right? He comes up in all his pomp and all his circumstances. What does he say? Therefore, this is a day of independence for all the munchkins and their descendants. Let the joyous news be spread. The wicked old witch is dead. And then what do they sing? Don't sing it, but you know what they sing. But then what happens? She's got an ugly sister. And just after a few minutes, she shows up and ruins the whole thing, right? Listen carefully. When Jesus says something like, this is a day of independence for all their Christians and, and my descendants, when that happens, there's not going to be any relapse. It is done. It is done, and it's great forever. That's why there's a celebration. Young people, you might not feel near death now. Kind of strong, kind of praise God for your strength. Praise God. But as you grow older and you get in touch with sickness and death and you get the bad report, these things loom large. These promises grow and grow and grow. And you anticipate, you anticipate the day when you won't need any of the checkups and all that kind of stuff again. Final exhortation. It'll just be a minute or two. Now listen, in light of all that's been said, doesn't verse 58 make complete sense? We're going to do verse 58 next week, but doesn't it make complete sense? Because death has been finally defeated by Christ, because a resurrection is coming because of Christ, then it makes all the sense in the world that we pour out our life for Christ. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't you got to do better and work harder for Jesus. This is like you think this out. You think this out. Look what you're going to get. Look what has been won for you. Doesn't it make so much sense since our life compared to eternity on this earth is a dot? Doesn't verse 58 make sense? I think it does. God thinks it does because he put it in there. But we're going to have to take care of it next time. From a tombstone in France.
Here lies a man who went out of the world not knowing why he came into it. May God make it so that none of us here this morning are like that. The Christian hope has always been and always will endure the passing of time. It is certain, it is amazing, and by God's grace, because of Jesus, and only because of Jesus, Christian hope is coming. It's coming for all God's people, which I pray is everyone here this morning. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we give glory to your name. This is an incredibly moving truth, Father. This is real theology. This is thick with the cross and thick with resurrection power. And it must change us, God, beginning with myself. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours that are his today and forevermore. Amen.